Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The sky in Afghanistan is getting darker and darker by the minute, ladies and gentlemen, as we head into the weekend and the final hours of a mass evacuation that has saved thousands of innocent families but also has the potential to leave thousands more stranded and facing a certain death. Last night, Joe Biden once again laughed in the face of those people who expected the United States of America to protect them and to honour their commitment to them after years of service to the Allied cause. And as the Taliban closed ranks and cut off the road to the airport and freedom, we are once more left with the prospect of betrayal to the very people our armed forces relied upon for so many years. It's very shameful, it's very, very predictable and I'm afraid it is very, very embarrassing for not only this country but for the United States of America as well. In the background there are more fears that a terrorist strike is imminent on Kabul airport. We'll be asking Colonel James Sutherland MP just what he thinks of the Biden administration and its continued insistence on abandoning the people of Afghanistan. Uh, There was a press conference last night in the White House with the Secretary of State and I have to say a less impressive figure I don't think I've ever seen at the podium of that very esteemed building. Yesterday uh, Bob Seeley MP, one of James Sutherland's colleagues, suggested the President of the United States was actually Gaga. It's hard to disagree with that uh, analysis, isn't it? 0344-499-1000. Coming up later on, we'll be joined by Helen Dell, author, lawyer and political commentator. She'll be giving us her take on the Extinction Rebellion morons who were filming each other engaged in street theatre yesterday while attempting to draw attention to the climate emergency because, you know, nobody's talking about it, are they? Really? Really? Plus, we've got Liz Cole, co-founder of Us For Them, on the ridiculous concept of the government now telling 12-year-olds to get vaccinated against COVID without their parents' permission. This is now seriously getting out of hand, ladies and gentlemen. 03444991000. Also, Angela Levin will be here to tell us whether Harry and Meghan are about to name the person they accuse of racism in the royal family. And we'll find out what it means that left-wing firebrand Len McCluskey has been chucked out of the job as head of the Unite Union. Also, it's Thursday, so we're going to have the Thursday Club, yet another edition with Helena Nicklin. Uh, today we're going rogue with some absinthe. That's not going to end well, is it? 0344-499-1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the home of Common Sense, the original and the best, the very cradle of truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is Thursday. This has been another very, very difficult week for those people in Afghanistan. I was watching last night uh, as some people at the airport seemed to be walking through what appeared to be about two feet of water. I'm not quite sure why that was. Um, But the conditions for the people waiting to get on planes is disgraceful. The way the Taliban is about to treat them and is treating some people is also disgraceful. The way um, that Joe Biden has treated people is an absolute disgrace as well. And yesterday... uh, I'd have to say, watching the um, press conference held by the Secretary of State for the United States of America, you'd have to say, actually, this is a guy who doesn't appear to be in control of his brief, doesn't appear to look as though he knows what he's doing, doesn't appear to look as though he even wants the job. Because it's all terribly embarrassing for America, terribly embarrassing for Britain, and it's only going to end, I'm afraid, in even more of a disaster than it is already. Let's talk to Colonel James Sunderland, Conservative MP for Bracknell. Uh, He was in the military for 27 years before becoming an MP at the last election. Colonel James, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, as uh, the hours tick by, um, it looks as though it's getting worse rather than better, does it not, in uh, in Kabul? Uh, we're told by the Americans that a, a terrorism strike is, is, is practically imminent. I don't know how, how good that information is, but, but certainly for those people who are still waiting to get out, it must be an awful, awful situation to be in. Yeah, agreed. It's a complete mess. And we're now heading into a very critical stage of the operation in the sense that... Uh, We've already got out almost 30, 13,000 British nationals. Um, there are more British nationals left to come out of Afghanistan. Where are they? Are they at the airport? Are they in Kabul? Are they further afield across Afghanistan? Getting hold of them will not be easy. Mm. But of course, that backdrop, that difficulty, that logistic nightmare of getting people to the airhead is also underpinned by what is now a very real threat of terrorist action. Well, exactly right. And I mean, uh, we're talking about something called ISIS-K, which the Americans keep mentioning. I'm not even really sure what ISIS-K is. Are these thought to be Afghan soldiers uh, who have turned to terrorism? Are they thought to be sort of rogue members of the Taliban? Or are they coming across borders from Iran uh, and from other parts of, of that uh, of that area? Well, I'm not entirely sure what an ISIS-K is either. Um, clearly, American military speak. They'll have an idea from good intelligence of what the future may hold for Kabul. Mm. Um, but again, look at where Afghanistan is. It's in a tricky part of the world. Look at who their neighbours are, particularly to the West. I've no doubt at all that uh, foreign intelligence services and others are looking to cause mischief. And why wouldn't you under the glare of the world's media? Well, this is the problem, isn't it? And and clearly, it seems to me, and this is the most shameful part of this entire operation, that politicians appear to have accepted that there will be losses, as it were, almost as though uh, it was some kind of military conflict. But it's not a military conflict. These are ordinary, innocent civilians who have helped, in some ways, the Allied uh, troops, whether they've been working in embassies, whether they've been interpreters or drivers or cooks. You know, any number of different jobs have been done by these people. They will face a certain death. And I find it astonishing, James, um, that people like Joe Biden and Boris Johnson, to a lesser extent, can kind of accept that this is just the way of things. I mean, Mike, there's lots in that question, and I'll try to unpick it very, very, very quickly if I can. I mean, the first thing is the Americans made the decision 18 months ago through the Doha Agreement that they would be withdrawing from Afghanistan. That has come as a surprise to no one. And the Americans tend to be as good as their word. They are fulfilling the deal that they signed with the Taliban. They are leaving Kabul. They've been given a deadline. And it's been made quite clear to them by the Taliban that 31st of August is the deadline. That is now the date on which other coalition forces are working towards. Um, I spoke yesterday with the defence minister. He was absolutely clear that the window of opportunity is closing. We've got work to do. We need to work really quickly. We need to operate fast to get our planes in there and get people out. But in terms of the broader picture, this is one of these awful, sad, desperate, regrettable events that we've seen across the world many, many times before. We've got an, an atmosphere, an environment which is getting worse by the day. You've got a humanitarian disaster. And I said this in the chamber last week. It's important that the FCDO does not write checks that it can't cash. We cannot offer a safe haven to everyone, as desperate as it is. I was on a call yesterday with the Defence Minister, with, with Ben Wallace, and um, you know, you had a whole, a whole, you know, a whole continuum of MPs. Um, raising individual cases with him. Can we get them out? Can we get them out? Constituency casework is heavy for all of us at the moment. You can't write blank checks and it's impossible to get everybody out that you might want to. Yes, but I mean, you've said exactly what I've accused others of saying uh, in a rather glib manner, James. And I'm not criticising you as an individual, but, you know, that's not really acceptable. You're basically condemning people to death. Well, of course I'm not. Um, I, I mean... It is an awful situation out there. There is a debate to be had on the extent to which the UK and the US in particular do have a responsibility for 38 million Afghanistanis. Uh, of course, the answer is we don't. Um, we have a responsibility clearly to those who assisted coalition forces, to the interpreters, yeah. to those on the Arab And those are the people I'm talking about. Really I'm not, you know, I don't, listen, I don't expect us, James, to rescue everybody in Afghanistan. I think that would be un, unreasonable and, and quite un, unworkable. But what I do expect is that anyone who did work for the British or the Americans or anybody else that was in, in there as an ally, um, they should be taken outside of the country because if they're not, they will be killed. Well, I think it's very, very important, Mike, that we don't adopt an overly simplistic approach to what is a very complex problem. 
I mean, the reality on the ground at the moment is that this is a difficult and dangerous environment. The reality is that people in Afghanistan are about to face a huge humanitarian crisis where the Taliban may revert to their old ways. Well, they will. This is very worrying. Now, publicly and politically, the Taliban have made it clear to date that they intend not to become a pariah state, that they intend to honour those commitments that were signed in the Doha Agreement, and we need to give them a chance. But my instinct here, and many of those who've served in Afghanistan, my instinct with them is the fact that uh, we are also going to be dealing with a basket case once again. That's right. And the only reason, really, um, Colonel, that, that, that it is dangerous and difficult in Afghanistan is because the Americans pulled out before they should have done. That's the reason it's dangerous. That's the reason why Kabul Airport is now a sort of oasis uh, in the middle of a desert whereby it's being ringed by Taliban fighters who won't let anybody now get there. The reason for that is purely and simply that the Americans pulled out before they should have done. Well, I'm pretty clear that uh, the Americans have pulled out too early. Um, I've said this publicly before, but um, we could have stayed a bit longer. 20 years is a long time. There's been lots of successes out there. Look at Afghanistan today to what it was 20 years ago. Uh, we were on the the road to a democratic government, to relative safety, to peace and prosperity. Um, it's all relative, of course, in that part of the world, but but we were making progress. And my personal view, as somebody who's served all across the world for a long time, is that we could have adopted this, this BMAP, IMAP model, whereby people in uniform were there holding the fort, propping up the government, giving leadership, inspired leadership themselves and making it quite clear that we stand shoulder to shoulder with our allies. So I think we could have stayed a bit longer, yes. No, I accept that. And listen, I'm, I'm the last person to criticise anyone in the military, because that's not what I'm about, uh, because I think the military are rescuing the situation uh, even as we speak, and they're doing a magnificent job uh, against all odds. But what I am saying, James, is that, look... There is absolutely no question that people are fed up and they don't want to keep con uh, continually sending troops into areas where uh, they're far flung, uh, they're difficult to police, difficult to, uh, to work out where it's all going to go. I get all that. And I think most people understand that, of course, the troops at some point or other would have to have been withdrawn. But you can't, I cannot emphasise enough, and I'm sure you would agree, that the manner in which this was done was just absolutely disastrous. Yeah, again, it's relative, Mike. I mean, th this is a complex issue. There is a debate to be had in due course as to the point at which we should have withdrawn from Afghanistan. But as I said, 20 years is a long time. Western nations cannot become embroiled indefinitely in a forever No, war. no, I've said that. The responsibility to those troops who have served out there. And of course, at some point, we have to allow those countries to stand on their own two feet. The Afghan army was 300,000 strong. It was well-equipped. It was well-trained. There was lots of money sloshing around. And, and the way in which that's capitulated is regrettable. But in particular, when the government gets on a plane and disappears out, it's indicative of the fact you're dealing with a very difficult situation, difficult people. Um, there are no rights and wrongs here. There is no nirvana. There is no, there's, there's no perfect solution. But the decision has been made. The Americans and the British were of the view that the Afghan army and the Afghan government was able to stand on its own two feet. That's proven not to be the case. And we're now suffering the consequences. Yeah. But I mean, again, without wishing to labour the point too much, um, surely it would have been easier to evacuate Kabul uh, while we were still in control of it or while the president was still there or while certainly the Afghan army was still in control rather than waiting for the Taliban to take control of Kabul and then try and do it. Again, it's a fair point, but why would you evacuate Kabul um, of British nationals when, when contracts have been signed, when the country's heading in the right direction, when you've got a relatively benign environment that's working, you've got women and children schools, you've got human rights, you've got communities working, you've got markets, prosperity, trade, the list goes on. Um, what's happened here, and the Q4, as we call it in the military, what's changed is the fact that the Taliban have marched into Kabul a lot more easily than anybody would have given credit for. Mm. And that, in my view, is what's changed. OK, well, why? Let me ask you another question. And you're a man that would know the answer to this. Why was our intelligence so useless in that case? Well, I'm not sure it was. I mean, I, well, I it was wrong, wasn't it? It didn't had. see this coming. It was obviously wrong. Well, I, I think, once again, when you spend 20 years propping up a country, when you spend 20 years capacity building, when you train an Afghan army of considerable size, when you equip that army, when you give it all of the tools to do the job, the one thing that we weren't expecting was for the leadership to down tools and go. Uh, and that, in my view, has been one of the big failures. 
But we come back to the original point. To what extent does the US and the UK and other coalition forces have a responsibility for indefinitely being embroiled in an overseas forever war? 20 years was clearly the time limit. But as you've said, though, hang on, James. But you've said just now, it wasn't wasn't a forever war. Yeah, but you've said, James, it wasn't a forever war. You know, I think that's a misnomer because, as you've said, it was a stabilised area. It was a place where the troops were not involved in fighting. Uh, My understanding is no American or British troops uh, had been killed for well over a year. It was a kind of almost a peacekeeping mission, if you like, uh, and, a, and, a, and a mission to kind of try and make Afghanistan a good place for people to live in. So it wasn't actually a war that was going on. And as people have often said, we've left troops behind uh, in all sorts of places, including Germany. The Americans have been in South Korea since the war uh, in, uh, in the 1940s. You know, I mean, there is precedent for different behaviour which, which could have stopped this from happening. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I've said before in this interview that uh, I feel that the Americans could have stayed longer. Once they made that unilateral decision to pull out, it was difficult for any other member of NATO to stay. Um, The UK, I know for a fact, did everything possible to coerce the US to stay a bit longer. Um, It was very active within NATO to try and get a coalition um, of willing partners to stay there as well. But the UK was not able to operate autonomously and, and would have been left holding the baby, literally. So my my view at the moment is that this all comes down to that unilateral US policy decision to vacate Afghanistan. And my personal view is that we could have stayed a bit longer and we had more work to do. Mm. And it wouldn't have been difficult for a relatively small garrison of troops to have kept the peace in Kabul and kept the Taliban away. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Colonel James Sutherland, stay with us if you would for a little while. We're just going to take a short break. I want to ask you about what happens next, what our responsibilities are for those people who are coming out of uh, Afghanistan. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're talking to Colonel James Sutherland, Conservative MP for Bracknell, uh, who was in the military for 27 years, a man that knows a thing or two uh, about operations, particularly in uh, places like Afghanistan. Um, James, let me just ask you um, about what happens now because clearly um, the next few days are probably going to be the final chance that anybody has to get anybody out. Um, at what point, militarily, um, do the soldiers just say, OK, that's it, we're gone? Because I would imagine some soldiers might feel the need to be more, perhaps, reliable, if you like, than some of the politicians. Well, the simple answer is that the permanent joint headquarters in Northwood um, running this operation at the moment will have a very clear plan. Um, and it will be quite obvious to them what they're working to at the moment, which again is the 31st of August. There'll be a point in time at which the evacuation operation ramps down in order to get troops out. Mm. Uh, it stands to reason that the, the last few flights out of Kabul um, on or before the 31st of August will comprise mainly British servicemen and women um, who are coming home. Yes. And as far as what happens to those who do leave, I mean, the Americans have made it very clear they're not interested in even taking really any um, Afghan um, refugees, which seems an extraordinary uh, place to be uh, for, for, for somebody who claims to be, as Joe Biden does, a humanitarian. Um, but obviously, from our point of view, and he more or less said, that, well, this is the West's problem, it's Europe's problem. Um, obviously, we're going to see an influx of people. There's, there's arguments about numbers. Um, I think there is a very real argument to be made that, you know, in this country, we are very small. Uh, we are quite overcrowded. You know, we cannot take unlimited numbers of refugees. Yeah, I agree. And I said this before, we, we cannot write checks that uh, we can't cash. Mm. But by the same token, we do have a responsibility to those who supported coalition forces. I mentioned the Arab scheme before, interpreters, others whose lives might be in danger. And I think that uh, the plan at the moment is very much working to that end. In other words, there are a list of people, so-called list of entitled personnel, who the Foreign Office have identified, who are trying to get out through the airhead. And once, of course, they come back to the UK, if that is the plan, then we have a responsibility to look after them. We have been very generous as a nation. Um, We have been very generous over many, many years with refugees. Um, We have politicians in the House today who are first, second generation um, refugees. We are a generous, hospitable nation, and that won't change now. It won't change, but people's patience, uh, particularly given what's happening every single day now on the south coast of this country, uh, where people are coming in in their hundreds and possibly thousands on a weekly basis, people's um, patience is being stretched to incredulity, I would say. I I totally agree with you, and I I think this is one of the the core issues facing my party at the moment. 
Um, most voters I speak to want to see decisive action taken in the channel yeah. um, so that those who come here illegally are dealt with appropriately, quickly and expediently. Mm. And what mm. we have to do is to get primary legislation through the House, and that's coming after recess to make sure that we have the legal framework by, by which we can do that. Yeah. But what we must not do is to conflate the situation in Afghanistan right now with what's happening across the channel. Those people who are coming to the UK on the Arab scheme from Afghanistan are entitled personnel. They are here at the invitation of the British government, and rightly so. And, and the majority of those coming across the channel, coming here illegally, are not here by the no, invitation. But bizarrely, some of those people who are coming illegally are from Afghanistan. Um, and interestingly enough, people who look at these things uh, in the round and people who don't have the expertise that you may have, look at it and say, well, what's the difference? Because it seems as though as long as you get to this country, um, you can stay. Well, again, this is a very complex issue. I mean, I've served all over the world in some pretty unpleasant places. And having worked very closely with people of all nationalities in all parts of the world, I can tell you that why wouldn't you want to come to the UK, which is a democracy, it's a fine country, generous, good quality of life. The point I'm making to you is that uh, 38 million Afghans have probably got that in mind at the moment. What we can't afford to be on the world stage is too generous. We can't afford to be a soft touch. And what's happened at the moment is that the open borders policy for many, many, many years has hurt us very, very badly. And what we need to do now is to take decisive action so we break that cycle of people thinking they come to the UK as a soft touch. And of course, we all know the fact that many of these um, these poor people, these migrants, these asylum seekers are coming through other nations to get to the UK. Why aren't the Germans taking them? Why aren't the French taking them? Why isn't the Greek government taking them, the Italians and so on? So I'm afraid there is a vicious cycle here of gangs who are feeding off vulnerable people. We need to stop those gangs. We need to get these people and turn them around yeah. and turn them home. I mean, the answer to that, obviously, is that, yes, um, the Germans are taking them, as are the Greeks, as are the Italians. I mean, Pakistan has got three million Afghan refugees. You know, Iran's got two and a half million. Uh, we are told quite regularly by those in the refugee business that we take a smaller number of refugees than almost every other country in Europe. I'm sure that that may well be true, but lots of other countries in Europe are a lot bigger than ours. Uh, but the problem surely now is, James, that we have to look at the world in a different way. You know, we have to try and make it impossible for people to want to come here rather than uh, stay in their own country. We need to, to take a different tack, do we not, in the world so that people who are in places like Afghanistan and Libya and Syria and Lebanon um, and other parts uh, of the world don't wish to come here uh, because their lives are so useless and ho horrible and ghastly back home. Yeah, I mean, the word that springs to mind is diaspora, of course. And if you've got family in the UK, if your brother or cousin mother, father have settled in the UK and living there quite happily, uh, holding down a good job, why wouldn't you want to join them? Mm. And I think part of the issue is that these poor people are trying to join family or they know of people that have settled and done very, very, very well indeed. But of course, we are a small country, 60 million people. Um, we are a dense populated country. And at some point, we need to be less generous because it's a simple matter of logistics. We, we, we cannot maintain the open borders policy that was so unpopular for so long. Um, we were given a clear mandate in 2019 when Boris Johnson got elected, and we need to fulfil that promise, and mm. we'll do so. And finally, um, Colonel James, if the Taliban do revert to type, and when all the troops leave, they just start killing people at will, do we just let that happen and just not bother ever, ever looking at them again? Well, it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, I think that having left Afghanistan, the ability of the Americans, the British in particular, to prosecute influence there is more difficult. So I do think it's very important that we engage now the Taliban. We may not like to. They're not nice people. We've been fighting them for long enough. Um, picture the scenes of members of Two Para right now in Kabul on patrols with the Taliban. Quite extraordinary, if you ask me, but this is the way things work. And this is what needs to happen. So in my view, by pulling out of Afghanistan, we cannot be too influential there militarily, but we must ensure that we are influential there politically, diplomatically. And I'm afraid keeping a presence in Kabul is very, very important. What we must do as well is make sure that the Americans also ensure that the Taliban hold their side of the bargain from the Doha Agreement 2020. If the Taliban start killing people, chopping heads off, chopping hands off, not a particularly nice place to be. And we therefore need to treat them once again as a prior state. But I'm confident 
or at least hopeful, that the Taliban will learn the lessons from the past and will also start engaging as they should on the world stage. OK. Colonel James Sutherland, thank you very much indeed. Conservative MP for Bracknell, uh, former military man, of course, himself. It's a massive problem. Uh, it's a huge, huge quandary for an awful lot of politicians and for an awful lot of soldiers and military men as well. But what I can tell you is that the way that the Americans have dealt with this has been nothing short of absolutely and utterly shameful. And the man, uh, Anthony Blinken, who was sworn in as US Secretary of State just in January of this year, uh, looks like a man who is not up to the job, looks like a man who has been swamped uh, with all of the detail of what he's had to do in Afghanistan. He doesn't even look as if he believes in the Joe Biden presidency. Uh, Joe Biden has been called Gaga by one of our own MPs, Bob Seeley, who's also a military guy. I mean, it is an absolute shambles of a policy. America has defeated uh, democracy in one fell swoop. And Joe Biden, the man who was supposed to be the answer uh, to everything evil that Donald Trump supposedly presented to the world, has been literally nothing short of a maniac in this instance. And I think he has to be stopped, quite frankly. What else is he going to do? What's he going to do next? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. First, though, let's talk to Liz Cole, co-founder of Us For Them, because it turns out, right, that the NHS England organisation has been drawing up plans to offer COVID vaccines to children as young as 12 without their parents' consent. I say enough is enough. It's time to stop this utter madness. Liz, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. I mean, I can't, um, yeah. I can't quite believe. I mean, it was bad enough when they started sending out letters to, to 16 and 17-year-olds to say, don't worry about telling your parents, just come and get a vaccine. And if there's any problem, you know, um, just we'll just keep sending you letters until you give in. Um, they're now targeting 12-year-olds. It seems extraordinary to me. Why? It is extraordinary. I mean, so much about that story is concerning. Mm. Um, first of all, we've never had any... Um, data or transparent statement about what even shifted in the JCVI's position to decide to vaccinate 16 to 17 year olds. Right. Now it seems the NHS is rolling out a plan to vaccinate 12 to 15 year olds and it's unclear whether the JCVI has actually um, aligned with that decision. Um, so it seems the government's just rolling that out. And then we have the whole issue of, of parental consent. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, I'm actually stunned by this, that we've got a Conservative government here striking at the heart of parental authority, at families, and just displaying complete contempt for parents. Yeah. And there is no way that my 12-year-old will be able to provide informed consent. When you hear the JCVI talking about the risk-benefit profile for this vaccination in that cohort, they struggle to articulate it. So how on earth is a, is a nurse in a school going to articulate that to a 12-year-old to provide proper, free, voluntary, informed consent, and for that 12-year-old to be able to make a decision and understand the, the various um, implications yeah. of that when the JCPOA can't articulate it themselves. Oh. It's just, I'm staggered by mm. this, absolutely staggered. 
But this is yeah. the thing, Liz. I mean, as parents, you know, we're used to having a reasonable kind of co, uh, co sort of uh, conspiracy, if you like, with our children and the schools that they go to. Yeah. You know, we talk to the teachers, we talk to the headmaster or the headmistress, and we work together with them for anything that is going to affect the children. At no point is a 12-year-old in school, in any way, shape or form, allowed to make a decision uh, which then affects what they do without the parents knowing about it. So why is this different? Well, exactly. I mean, people are, are, you know, giving me examples of how their child had a splinter and that wasn't allowed to be removed yeah. from, without parental consent school. We're just having a little trouble with your line there, Liz. Let's see if we can get that better. It's a bit of a... Uh what can only be described as a shugly connection. Um, we'll try and come back to that. One of the things that we're being told at the moment, by the way, by um, by NHS England, is that 16 and 17-year-olds are only being approached if uh, they have got uh, immune weaknesses themselves or uh, if they live with vulnerable people. Now, that is demonstrably untrue. I can tell you that for a fact because I happen to know that one of my children has been approached to take part in some vaccination trial scheme, right, uh, without having... Uh, living without him either living with anybody vulnerable or indeed uh, without him uh, suffering from any kind of immune weakness himself. So it's absolutely and utterly wrong for NHS England to tell lies like this, which is what this is, because they do tell lies. They've been telling lies for quite a long time, NHS England, about what uh, vaccines are going to be offered to whom. And now they're drawing up plans for 12 year olds. I think we've got Liz back. Liz, um, I hope we've got a better connection now. Yeah, I'm on my phone now. Is that yeah. better? Yes, I know. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, we get told by all sorts of governments, oh, don't worry, we're going to roll out 5G. It's going to be brilliant. You know, we're going to be in the white hot heat of technology and you can't even get a decent Wi-Fi connection, um, you know, 20 miles away. Yeah, exactly. Um... Shocking state of affairs. Anyway, what we're saying was, look, one of my own children has been written to by the NHS. Um, loads and loads of paperwork sent through the door, addressed to him. Um, he's 17 now. Uh, he's not vulnerable. Uh, we're not vulnerable. We're told that they're only sending these things out to vulnerable children. He was sent an application to join some kind of vaccination trial, right? Um, mm -hmm. Again, without, and it said quite, quite clearly, you don't have to ask your parents' permission. And it was really pushy as well. Yeah, and this is this is the other thing is we're not we're not talking here about an offer that will be made to twelve to fifteen mm. year olds and sixteen to seventeen year olds. We're talking about something that has already been subject to you know, serious levels of coercion, um, coercive messaging, um, let's say incentives which aren't incentives. Um, and how how is it going to work in a school setting? Are they seriously saying that this is going to be a voluntary free decision, free of pressure, free of pressure from anyone in the school setting at all? Mm. I'd love to hear from the government how they plan to meet their obligations to actually allowing proper informed free consent yes. for our 12-year-olds. I'd exactly. love to hear that. And I think they should have a press conference so that we can actually hear from the JCVI, from the medical officer from the Department for Health, how they've all aligned on this and to explain what are the risks and the benefits in this cohort and yes. may articulate that position so we can hear what the 12-year-olds are going to be mm. hearing. Yes. I, would, I would love to hear that. Instead of this, you know, going around behind closed doors, um, denying and, and, and then coming out later and saying this is the policy, let them explain it. Yeah. I would like to hear them explain it directly to me as a parent and to my child so I can understand how they've come about this decision. Yes. No, I think you're absolutely right. And what I'd also like to, to, to offer uh, in addition to that uh, is that I sit there in front of them and get to ask them questions because the number of questions that they get asked by the various members of the media is so useless that they never actually get to the heart of anything. Because I've been asking for quite a long time now, Liz, um, exactly what can you tell me about the efficacy of giving a vaccine to a child uh, who might otherwise be at very, very low risk of catching COVID in the first place. And if he did or she did catch it, uh, they would be very much unlikely uh, to be very ill with it. And what is the actual effect and the side effect possibilities of any vaccine that you're giving to any child? Because we still haven't really been told of anything other than a very vague sort of, oh, it's fine, it's absolutely fine. You know, suddenly now pregnant women are being told to take it when before they were told not to take it. Now we're being told, oh, well, the reason we tell them now is because we've got the data and it doesn't seem to be a problem. Well, does it seem to be a problem? If I was about to have a baby with, with my partner, I would not be getting that vaccine. I would be saying, hang on a minute, this is not convincing enough to me. Yeah, exactly. And I think at the heart of all of this is trust. 
Um, you know, trust in public health yeah. is absolutely essential. Trust in the government is essential. Trust in the school when you're sending your children to school is essential. And up until now, I felt that I did trust all of those authorities. Now, I don't trust them. I don't trust them to make the best decision for my child. And I certainly don't trust um, the... I don't trust the... Um, when I don't see the data, mm. I don't hear the I don't hear the information coming through. So it's about transparency, um, and we've got to get that um, from them. I, I want to hear what is the reasoning for this. It's yes. a very very simple question, and it should have a simple right. answer. Because my understanding, Liz, as I'm sure yours is, is that the data hasn't changed. Nothing's actually changed in terms of the data that's been collected when it comes to the vaccination of people under 18, and there doesn't appear, therefore, to be any necessity to do it. There's no, there doesn't seem to be any clear benefit, um, and there do seem to be some. Let's let's be clear, there are you know, small small risks, but there's no there's no benefit. Mm. And the AGI has said that on July they made um, very clear that the risks um, weren't outweighed by the benefit. So if something's changed, they need to tell us what something is. Yeah. Um, but the fact that this is happening. Um, seemingly behind closed doors makes me concerned that this is a, once again a political decision um, that isn't necessarily backed up by the data. So if they would like to reassure us that that's not the case, then they need to share um, the data with us as yes. parents. Yes. Um, and and certainly, you know, the the whole notion that that a twelve year old is going to give consent without parental consent is is a bigger question to me, and mm. it. And I think that that also needs to be addressed separately because, you know, we are really striking at the heart of families and and parental authority. Yes, absolutely right. Liz, thanks very much indeed. Liz Cole, the co-founder of Us For Them, uh, which is a campaigning group. On behalf of children, let's face it, these are children we're talking about. Do you remember all that long time ago, back in the mists of time, uh, when we were told, look, here's the thing. Once we get the vaccine, we're out of here. Everything will be better. Everything will be solved. Everything will be sorted. And in fact, it won't be everybody that needs vaccination. It's just the vulnerable. Just the vulnerable. And we'll be able to do that quite quickly. And then, of course, it became, well, we've done the vulnerable people. Now we need to do everybody over 60. Yes. And then that will be fine. And then we'll all be fine. And then everything will be absolutely tickety-boo. And then we had to do everybody over 50. And then we had to do everybody over 40. Then we were told... That should be it. Definitely no problem at all. We'll have a quite a good deal of herd immunity now since everybody over the age of 50 has been vaccinated. All the people who might suffer badly from getting COVID, that will mean uh, that they will all be fine. And we can all go about our business, can't we? No, we can't. Now we have to vaccinate everybody over 40. So see how long ago this all was? People forget, right? This is all down to sage, those complete and utter nutters who think that they can go around telling everybody how to behave. And if they don't like how you behave, they're going to change how you behave. They're going to tell you to do something that they want you to do in order to make you do something completely different. 40. Yeah, that's fine. After that, we're absolutely finished. No more vaccinations required. Everybody over 40 will be done. It'll be fine. It'll be absolutely great. Uh, hello. Sorry. Um, yeah, we have to now vaccinate everybody over 30. Do you? Do you? Really? Okay. All right. Well, I suppose. Fair enough. Over 30. Not a problem. Um, I've also I've got some more. I've got some more information here. Um, we're going to need to vaccinate people under 30. I could do this all day, you know. Um, and then, um, then definitely after that, we're finished. We're definitely finished. We don't need to go below 20 because obviously kids are <laughs> not in any danger. We don't need to vaccinate people who are under 18. Sorry, sorry. Under 20. No, no question. We don't need to. Mate, well, yeah, hello. Uh, can we now vaccinate everyone under 20 uh, down to 18? Do you really need to? Yeah, absolutely. It's for, it's for the best. It's to protect everyone, to make sure everybody's safe. Yeah. And then um, that'll definitely be it, though. We definitely will not need to vaccinate children because there's no evidence that the children are at any risk at all of catching COVID. There's no risk at all. Absolutely no risk. That's why we told them they can take their masks off. They don't need to go to school anymore wearing masks because it's not dangerous for them. OK. Hello. Yeah. Um, you're going to have to vaccinate your 17 year olds. Why? 
Well, because now you have to. Why? Well, because it's dangerous for them otherwise. Why? Well, we can't tell you that because uh, we haven't got any proof. Okay. What about 16-year-olds? No, 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 they'll be fine. You don't need to, uh, don't need to do them at all. But here's the thing. It's probably a good idea to do them, you know. 16-year-olds, um, okay then. And also they don't need their parents' consent, do they? No, absolutely not. They can they just, just go to the vaccination centre and get it done. Just get it done. But only have one vaccination because if you have a second one, it might be dangerous. I'm not sure about this, you know. I don't know if I want my kids to be vaccinated. Well, don't worry. Your younger kids won't need to be because it's not dangerous for them. There's no risk to them of getting COVID, is there? Well, all right then. What now? Your 12-year-old. We need him. Get him out now. Drag him down to the centre. We're going to stick a needle in his arm. We don't need your permission. Just shut up. Really? You think? Is it for everybody's safety? Yes, it's for everybody's safety. It's better for them. It's better for everybody. For everyone needs to be protected. Shut up. Go away. Just get lost. No. You know, when you had that vaccine earlier in the year, we need to get another one now because it's run out. So, so what you're telling me, my 12-year-old needs a vaccination, even though it doesn't really make any difference. Um, the 16 and 17-year-olds have had them already because it's better for everybody else to have them. You now have to get, I now have to get another one uh, because apparently the one that I had before has now run out. Has anyone seen a pattern here? Have I gone completely mad? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us talk uh, to Andrew Woodcock, listening editor of The Independent, because something happened yesterday which was quite significant. And in the midst of all of the big news from Afghanistan, uh, all of the news about Harry and Meghan, all of the news about COVID and the fact that uh, the NHS England now wants to vaccinate 12-year-olds, uh, quite a significant thing happened. And that was that Len McCluskey, uh, who was st stepping down as leader of the Unite Union anyway, um, was not successful in getting his kind of um, uh, ally, if you like, or his protege into the job. His ally was somebody by the name uh, of Steve Turner, who was supposed to be getting in to run the Unite Union in the form that he had run it in. However, Sharon Graham eventually won the election by 5,000 votes. And depending on who you speak to, uh, she would appear to be Sir Keir Starmer's choice for the job. So uh, is this another blow against the left in Labour? Let's talk to Andrew and find out what he makes of it. Andrew, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. So, I mean, what do you make of this? I mean, I'm reading, I'm slightly confused reading some of the coverage this morning in the papers because Simon Walters in the Mail uh, is calling her a firebrand, uh, talking about how she once had a sort of cynical plot to target the rich and famous, including Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, so maybe she's not quite as centrist as, as we have been led to believe. But what, what's your take on it? Well, I think it's possibly from the point of view of Labour, it's best not to look at it as a, a right versus left battle, mm. um, so much as... A question of will, will the new, new leader of Unite try to interfere in Labour and its internal politics um, in the same way that Len McCluskey did? Mm. I mean, if you look at the three candidates, in fact, the centrist candidates, um, it was was Gerald Coyle, uh, Coyne, sorry, yes. rather, who's been born in the side of Len McCluskey for quite a while. Mm. And he would have taken a very difficult, different political line. Um, Sharon Graham is herself regarded by a lot of people as a, as a leftist. Um, Steve Turner was certainly Len McCluskey's choice for, um, for, for leader. Um, but uh, in terms of their political stance, there's, there's not a tremendous amount between them. I mean, Sharon Graham has been in charge. She's something of a protege of McCluskey herself, and mm. she was put in charge of his leverage unit, which was um, it, it's, it's a large unit within Unite and dozens of people who are looking at um, targeting employers who they regard as being um, difficult and, and hitting them hard and getting... getting um, Results for, for union members in terms right. of paying conditions and so on. There's been, they've been involved in fights with British Airways and with Amazon and so on. And her, her line was much more, she's going to take Unite back to the workplace and make it into something which is a fighting force for people in the workplace rather than getting involved in um, internal Labour Party mm. machination. Um, yes. She said, she said um, just before she was elected that you know, there's only 190-odd Labour MPs in Parliament. They, they can't change anything. So government, it's a big business that can change something. And so they're the people that, um, the unions ought to be targeting and ought to be um, 
you know, getting getting to grips with. Yes, because I suppose if you were a member of a union, you might be a bit fed up with all of their posturing and all of their kind of deliberations about things like trans rights and, um, you know, human rights and refugees rights and all of that, rather than actually the rights of the working men and women that they're supposed to represent. Well, yeah, I mean, Len McCluskey has um, been quite unusual in recent years in, in the um, union leaders in that he has got directly involved in you know the, the political machinations at the top of the, the, the Labour Party. Mm. He was a close, close ally of Jeremy Corbyn. Yes. He Unite inserts, um, it sponsors MPs as MPs who sympathise with it within the, within the Labour ranks. And it has, you know, it organises um, its MPs to unite behind various different campaigns and so on. And, um, you know, there's no doubt that when Jeremy Corbyn was was in office as the leader of the Labour Party, and Len McCluskey was a very, very big voice in determining what the what the party's um, positions were. Um, you know, obviously, that's not the same with Keir Starmer. And Keir Starmer probably will be will be delighted to have someone at the top of Unite who is promising to butt out of that mm. sort of, um, of thing and to get on with fights over things like zero hours contracts, like hire and refire. Um, you know, like gig, the gig economy and rights for, for workers who are, you know, are, um, are being being hired on smartphones for sort of individual jobs mm. every now and then. Um, and those are the sort of fights that actually Labour is interested in. And it's it will be, you know, be happy to have a union, um, you know, getting big campaigns going on those while steering clear of um, you know, trying to pick the shadow cabinet. Yes, quite. And I suppose for Keir Starmer, this is all part of his long walk to freedom, as he would see it, to try and rid the party of what he sees as the toxic left. Um, I mean, there are some saying that, you know, that really will not be complete uh, unless and until uh, he takes the bull by the horns and actually um, kicks Jeremy Corbyn out of the party. Yeah, well, he's, he's refused to let him back into the parlementary party. Yes. So, um, you know... Yeah, but I've been hearing I've been hearing people talking. Yeah, I've been hearing people talking ahead of the Labour Party conference, Andrew. That that you know that's a great opportunity for Starmer to actually kick him out of the party altogether. Never mind the parliamentary one. Well, there's no doubt that there will be a big clash at the conference between um, the you know the the the, the leadership and um, the the Corbynite wing of the Labour Party, which still you know the membership has dropped a lot since um, since Corbyn um, left as leader, but there's still a lot of um, of grassroots members of the Labour Party who, who support Corbyn, they support what he stood for, um, what he still stands for, really. And yeah, you're right that Starmer hasn't made that definitive um, break yet. He's he's you know he's clearly you know he's he's edged out most of the the Corbyn supporters from from the shadow cabinet, mm. from the, the shadow ministerial ranks. But he's not had that sort of you know like. Neil Kinnock in the in the conference in um, wherever it was Blackpool was it um, many many years ago. Yes, you're taking on militant from the stage. Starmer's never had one of those moments, and maybe this would be the time to do it. He certainly he needs to do something attention grabbing. He does, which will get he? people to because I was yeah because I was going to say yeah, I was going to say, Andrew, it's been another kind of fallow period for him, hasn't it, the last week or so? Because obviously the events in Afghanistan are so serious that it's difficult really for him to be too critical of the government when clearly everybody's really being critical of, of Joe Biden. But the bottom line as well is a lot of their shadow um, ministers have been out in force talking on the media and stuff. But Starmer, again, has just been just I just haven't seen him. Yeah, he's not he's not been at the fore of the um of the of the Labour take on the on the Afghanistan situation. I mean, yeah, for for a new, for a leader of the opposition, he has had a uniquely um, difficult period to to navigate since he came to, into office because um, almost you know, I mean, as soon as he was elected, we were in the COVID crisis. Mm. He couldn't, you know, he's been critical of the government, but you know, there's a certain sense where you know the whole country's pulling together to try and get through COVID. And it's not an ideal situation for an opposition party to be in. And now we've got the Afghanistan crisis. Again, it's a it's a difficult one for him to go on the front foot on. Um, but, you know, there's people in his party are saying he's been waiting to go on, a, on the front foot for too long. And mm. he's got to get out there. He's got to make an impression. He's got to show that he stands for something. Um, you know, people are asking, you know, what does he stand for? And, you know, we're hearing that he's going to try to make that clear at the conference, but you know he will have to do it in a way that will get through to ordinary voters out there who who don't um, pay attention to the minutiae of politics and they don't watch the um, party conference. No, season. well that is the problem, isn't it? And also, in order for him to reveal himself as standing for something, he's got to actually uh, um, stand for something. <laughs> yep, that's certainly true enough. I mean, it I mean is, call me old-fashioned. <laughs> you can go through his past, and you know, in, you know, there's. 
there's general sort of, um, you know, obviously, you know, generally where he stands on things, but there's no particular issue that he's made his own. There's no, um, you know, nothing that he's a lightning rod for the for the public to say, yes, that no. stands for that. Well, that's the trouble. I was talking to Baroness Hoey earlier in the week, and she's reviewed a couple of books that have come out about him, one of which is written by Lord Ashcroft. And she said the trouble is, is once you've read the books, he's even more boring and bland than you thought he was before you started them. <laughs> well, I wouldn't like to wouldn't <laughs> like to comment on that. It's uh, yeah, he's. I mean, you know, he's he's uh, he he needs to up his profile. There's yes. no doubt about. I'll tell you one thing I did enjoy, just before I let you go, is I did enjoy um, seeing Parliament full again. To have a full house in the chamber uh, for that debate on Afghanistan last week was really quite a thing to behold. Uh, when are we likely to see them back? Well, September 6th, um, Parliament returns, and there is no arrangement for um, hybrid um, participation. Now there's no, no video calls and no um, screens in the chamber. Right. So it, it should be back to normal, but how how many MPs actually turn up and cram into the chamber? Mm. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, hopefully there'll be a good number of them, but there are there are some who are you know, so, you know, medically vulnerable who will not want to turn up. There are some who um, maybe I, I you know may feel that they you know they're in danger if they mm. come back. It'll become a super spreader event, yes. and they don't want to be part of that. No, I, I would expect to see it fairly full. Yeah, but let's hope so because it does look a lot better, and it is a lot more better for democracy. I think Andrew Woodcock, thank you very much indeed, political editor of the Independent. Len McCluskey is no more. Uh, the firebrands of the left are no more at Unite. However, I wouldn't expect them to turn Blairite anytime soon, would you? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us say a very good afternoon to Ms. Angela Levin. Angela, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thank you um, very I much. You don't want me to shut up. I certainly don't want you to shut up. No, but I would quite like them to stop adding chapters, to stop literally sort of raking over old ground. I mean, the stuff in the in the paper today, in which they talk about everything from. Um, you know, revealing possibly the name of the person that was supposedly making a racial remark about uh, Archie to various other sort of truth bombs that they wanted to say to Oprah but decided not to. I mean, they're sort of carrying on like high school children, aren't they? Yes. Two important things I'd like to say. One is one day they're saying, you know, stay with us. We're going to do all this global work for humanity. Yes. You know, we're very concerned about Afghanistan. We're very concerned about Haiti. We're very concerned about the COVID. Come through our Archie um, setup and we will sort it out. We want to do all the good for the whole world. Okay. The next day, they're behaving like petulant teenagers, grumbling yes. about the most extraordinary things. That's one point. The second point is that. Usually, when you add a chapter to a book and it comes out as a paperback, uh, you listen to what's changed. Well, they're pretending that nothing has changed. Mm. They're attacking the Queen because um, she said recollections may vary. Yes. But then they, they're not attacking the Queen. They're attacking the royal family. But the royal family hasn't grasped it. They haven't taken responsibility. They haven't tried to make it right. Oh, yes, they have. They passed the whole problem about whether there was racism to a very um, strong and rec highly regarded uh, lawyers team. And they're going to come back with a decision in the new year. Mm. We know that. It's been in the papers. It's agreed with. Uh, the, the Buckingham Palace have said, yes, that's what's happening. But they pretend it isn't so they can get another moan in. Now, I find that absolutely astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. Also, what is extraordinary, I haven't stopped yet. I will in a minute. No, don't worry. Also, what's extraordinary is that Harry thought his grandfather's funeral, the most extraordinary man who died in 99, and he supported um, his wife for all those years. Um, it was all about his feelings. Yeah. He found the funeral was very, very difficult. And he found that um, the pressure, this is the word he uses, the pressure that was there because of his family that he hadn't seen them was too much for him to handle. Hello, mm. we're not talking about you. What about the Queen? He said his conversations with his father were very light. Well, I'm not surprised we could see that Charles was a wreck. He was genuinely heartbroken yeah. that his father had died. He doesn't then want to, at the funeral or 
just before or just after, start analysing Harry's grumbles. Mm. It's absolutely astonishing that people who are in their late 30s still behave like naughty 13-year-olds. Yes. And this is the other thing that annoys me intensely about these two, people who are on their side, you know, the kind of the nutty brigade on Twitter. Uh, talk about this young couple as if they're in the full sort of uh, uh, first few days of a, of, a, of a romance at the age of 18 or something. I mean, he's 36, she's 40. I mean, they're not very young, let's face it. Well, they're not. It's also they wanted to leave. They wanted to set up an independent life. They have got oodles of money coming in if they do the work that's necessary. They've bought a house with 16 bathrooms. I can never get over that. <laughs> so they are capable. They are capable of looking after themselves. They on the new in the news nearly every day with some moan or some new thing they're going to be doing. So they are capable. It's all pretense. It's I am a victim one day, yeah. I am ruling the world the next day. And that's why one reason of many, I think we're all absolutely fed up with them. And when you've got this trouble at Afghanistan, to still not alter your path. No. Is, I mean, you would think in the mid you would think, would you not, in the midst of what is probably considered to be the biggest world crisis that we've had, really, uh, for a very, very long time, that they might just keep their counsel and not do all this PR. Yeah, hold the, but also hold the book back, hold the chapter back. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that that could happen. Um, but the other thing is that they didn't stop their interview with Oprah Winfrey when they knew that the Duke of Edinburgh was going to die any any day. Yes. So it's not about anybody else. It's Zooming about them. And mm. the nonsense about Archie, and this chapter, it says he's been treated very differently from any other royal child well yes he has because um, it's very unusual to get the other grandmother to come along usually it's just the royals but the queen made an exception and charles made, prince charles made an exception to invite dora in to to see the the uh, christening very very nice indeed but to say he should have had a title and we still don't know whether they did want a title whether they didn't want a title but um george v said no titles for great-grandchildren. Yes. They have to wait till the next one's up. And Prince Edward's two children haven't got titles. So they are. They know that. Harry absolutely knows that. What are they doing just going on and on about the same old things when they have not solutions, but they have explanations? Why don't they listen? They won't listen at all. Well, because they think they know best. This is also the man who came over to, uh, to, to see his brother uh, and to help to unveil that statue of uh, his mother, uh, the Princess of Wales, in Kensington Palace Gardens, but who then left again bef a day before, I think it was, was it not, uh, his, his uh, grandmother's birthday? Yeah, it, well, it is it is um, astonishing, isn't it? And he says how much he likes her, and he attacks her, but then says, no, he wasn't attacking her, he was attacking the institution. But she made the comment, you can't attack an institution, you, you attack the person who'd made... The comment um and I, I just think it's just appalling bad taste but it's awfully sad that this couple who are supposed to absolutely adore each other and are very very happy that they've left and all that seem to thrive on hate and get the adrenaline from attacking but again here we have on the other hand because everything with them is a sort of mix and mess um they say the book is unauthorized and the book is written talking to um, unnamed people. Well, I can't understand why they're not th threatening them and suing them. <laughs> That's, That's a very good say. point. Well, of course, Omid Scobie um, only talks to their friends. But, of course, we know they don't really have any friends. And the only friends they do have, or that they count as friends, are all the people that got invited to Barack Obama's 60th birthday party. Uh, but they didn't. No, that's right. They're, I'm sure they haven't got over that and won't for many years. But I think the point is that um, they, the friends are do have the OK. They must do because they're so um, happy to sue them that nobody would speak. I mean, if I had a friend who was like that, I wouldn't say a word because why should I get entangled in that sort of legal matter? Mm. So it's all full of mystery of 
Um, but they're contradicting themselves and behaving in such a contrary way that it's actually quite worrying, really. One minute, Harry is talking about his mental ill health and how you know vulnerable he is, and the next minute he's being extremely aggressive and demanding mm. things out of a family who he has walked out on. Um, and, you know, if he was somebody who suffered from mental health issues and if he was somebody who genuinely needed some kind of therapy or some kind of course of treatment, I think if I was his wife, I would be urging him to do that. I wouldn't be urging him to sort of push himself forward to go and play polo and fly on private jets because he got a terrible shellacking for that, quite rightly, in my view. He didn't have to go. Uh, he didn't have to be uh, a part of it. And he didn't have to go on a private jet. But yet he did. And he thought it was justifiable on the grounds that it was all for charity. Yes, well, you know, the hypocrisy we've seen for a long time now, and they want to tell the world what to do, but none of it applies to them. Of course not. Now, the thing about Harry and mental health, when I spoke to him for, when I was writing his biography, and then he was a, a, a great man. I liked him very much. I'm very sad that how he's now developed. But um, he, he, he did need help, and he got it. So I think one must understand that that, is perhaps part of him. But if I was his wife, which I would never be in a million years, I would <laughs> say, don't have these fights. Let's just live our life. Let's move forward. We've got each other. How lucky we found each other. We've got babe, two babies, one of each sex. You know, we're living in a warm climate, lots of money. What could be better? Forget about your family, yes. move on. But actually she drives him in it. And he listens to her and, and she won't let anything go because she's very competitive. And he just stays there and he he does what he's told, poor fellow. I think so. And, and I mean, that can't be fun for him because I just, I'm saying actually more tongue in cheek than anything. That can you imagine what sort of a mood she would be in when she discovered that Gail King, Oprah Winfrey, George Clooney, and a couple of other friends of hers, Oprah Winfrey as well, uh, had all gone to Barack's, uh, Barack Obama's uh, party and they weren't invited. And also to read that one of the reasons apparently why was because Barack Obama and Michelle had decided to take the kind of uh, William and Kate side of the argument because they are, of course, going to be uh, the, the monarchs uh, and, and, the, and the family that runs the royal family. Yes, but I think I, I slightly disagree that they just chosen because they're going to be royal family. Um, they believe in the family. They think that, and, and um, it, Mrs. Obama has said that, you know, if you have a row, you must repair it because the family is the most important thing and and you have to get over it and so that you can get along. And I think it's the fact that um, they keep haranguing the family. The Queen, 95, who's lost her husband recently, bang, bang, bang on them, trying to destroy it because Meghan hasn't got the position that she wanted and Harry's unhappy that they haven't got the position they want. Um, and I think that William and Kate are stable they, of course, they're going to be next to the throne, but I think they're also very um, loving as a family. Yes. And I think that that's what they prefer. No, I think so. And what about um, the new baby, uh, the, 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 the daughter, uh, Lily Bett? We haven't seen her yet, have we? No, we haven't. I think there was a glimpse of her because I believe that Megan went over on the jet, on the, the friend's jet. Oh, um, for the polo? Yes, but I don't know if did. it was a picture or not. Um, but we haven't seen her, and it's very strange that we haven't. Mm. Um, I'm sure they're waiting for a big occasion, and then they will do it on that Well, day. I wouldn't be but surprised if they're going to go down the old Hello Magazine route. Remember when people used to go and sell their, yeah. uh, their stuff to the, the, the highest bidder, and it used to well, be Prince Hello or Philip. OK Magazine? Philip, um, Princess Anne's um, son, he did that. He yes. made a fortune and the Queen was absolutely furious because that was taking advantage of the royal family. But she won't mind now and they wouldn't listen anyway. No. Um, I think it is very strange that nothing has happened. Um, a nice picture of the two children together. Uh, well, just a nice family picture. And I mean, especially for those yeah. people that actually do support them and the people that are their fans. And I mean, they are celebrities, whether, you, whether we like it or not. You know, and surely uh, the part of uh, part of doing what the, is that they do is that you have to give something back. Yes. I, well, oh, no, I don't think they believe in that. <laughs> I think 
I don't think that's for them. I well, we saw that with the wedding. It yes. Was and what about the um, what about these these investigations? Because we we know two things, don't we? One that this bullying accusation was made, um, and it supposedly is being investigated by lawyers who are talking to people who worked for Megan. Um, that's Megan being a bully, not anybody yes. being a bully. Megan. Oh no, yeah. of course, yeah. But the point is, no, yeah. I, I don't know where that is, or, or whether we will find yeah. out where that is. Similarly, there was meant to be, was there not, another investigation into this alleged racist remark, and I don't know what's yeah. happened to that either. Well, that's as I said earlier. Just that's gone to a, a, a big law firm, and they're working their way through it. But they're interviewing lots of people and trying to build up. And there's also not a big rush. Everybody can carry on with their lives while they're investigating. And, and it's, it's in this time with all Afghan and the Queen uh, and on holidays, you know, it doesn't have to be made as a priority, but they want it as a pri priority without a doubt, because it's about them. And I think they'd nudge and groan and um, if it was a tiny little thing, you know, but with the, with the racist question, I mean, I felt throughout that, um, somebody and, and Harry corrected her, if you remember, during Oprah Winfrey's interview. Yes. When she said there's been so much, and he was looked surprised as he hadn't expected her to say that. Right. He said, Well, it was before you were pregnant, and it was only one person. Yes. So it's not actually the whole thing. But I think if you say, I wonder what colour it'll be, I've got friends who got a mixed race, and yeah. they every one of their three children, she's discussed with me what colour they thought they would be yeah. that time. And all you used to say, would the child have red hair? Right. You know, would the child be tall? Would yeah, the child be there's, there's no question. There's no I'm not question. saying it is. I'm not saying it is, but it could be just a normal conversation that has been blown up. Megan wasn't even there when they said it apparently no she wasn't because he, and this is why I've, I've said this to you before angela that i believe what happened is that he in order to try and sort of curry favor with her came back to tell her this story and she took it out of all proportion and turned yes. it into something massive and he was then slightly embarrassed by that yes well he looked very embarrassed by it on opera's uh chat yeah. um i think that's absolutely right mm. and you think why does she do that well i think that it's quite a useful thing to say. I, I obviously disapprove of any sort of racism within the royal family or anybody else. Oh. But um, sometimes, you know, people see it where other people wouldn't see it because they wouldn't dream of being racist. No, you know, they could say something and ask a question or make a point. Um, it might be a bit hurtful for the person even. Uh, the, 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 the person who spoke it would be horrified if they knew that. So I think sometimes um, these things are blown out of all proportion. Yes, I think that's absolutely what happened. Angela, pleasure to speak to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. I should, I'd like to say I'm looking forward to the new chapter coming out, but I'm not, uh, so I can't say I am. <laughs> uh, but of course, Harry and Meghan have got a new book, um, but it's an old book. It's just got a new chapter. And the new chapter is just going to go on and on and on about some old stuff that you already knew about and that they've decided to augment slightly uh, to see if they can sell a few more copies because money is everything to these two, after all. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 